0: If you've read an interesting piece recently in TechCrunch or LinkedIn about a purposeful data strategy, a data strategy that gets you thinking about how a focus on trust would be advantageous to your company, well, you might have been reading a piece by Dan Wu. Dan Wu is the privacy counsel and legal engineer at Immuta, a company that provides software to focus on managing access to, regulation of, and protection of data. But that's not enough about Dan. You see, Dan leveraged both his PhD in sociology and social policy and a law degree because he didn't think these two fields work closely together enough. He wants to see people and their data protected by design. So today, some big ideas that should change your thinking about data stewardship, including privacy, governance, and building trust. I'm John Pryor, and welcome to the Georgian Impact Podcast. So I love what you're saying, Dan, about it has to start at the C-suite level, has to stop now. Can you kind of look back a little bit and kind of take me through some of the biggest mistakes that you've seen CEOs make?
1: Absolutely. I I first want to point out that this is an extremely hard job for CEO. We're living in a world where everything is changing rapidly. But it's more reason for CEOs to look around the corner and learn from best practices. So I want to bring up the, the recent Apple Issue that happened with their product launch with Goldman Sachs, where they're launching a new credit card. I think it's an interesting case because Apple is setting itself up as a privacy leader. It's really, really pushing this idea that it's keeping your data secure, private, it's not sharing with other people. They had highly public arguments with the FBI and the federal government. Yet, despite their launch of this product, Twitter exploded with concerns that Apple's product was being biased against a certain demographic, particularly women. And it actually launched a federal investigation. And you might argue for Apple, who is a master at product launches, just think Steve Jobs with his turtleneck and everyone going crazy with his product. This is probably one of the worst product launches in a while. And it's really showing that if we don't get this right as organizations as competent as Apple, as familiar with financial regulations as Goldman Sachs is, even if you're checking all the boxes, you might get angry Twitter users critiquing your product and really even causing a, a statewide investigation into what you're doing.
0: So it's interesting because you're right. Tim Cook declared privacy. Apple really hung their hat on privacy, and he probably sat home at night saying, "Yeah, I think I did a good job. I got this privacy thing right," but. He missed something at a much deeper level. He didn't ask, is your algorithm biased or not? So does a CEO have to think about a data strategy then?
1: 100%. I think you're exactly right, is that it has to go beyond just thinking about privacy. But what is privacy for? Privacy is to protect people, and people also need to understand that. And so the data strategy... It's really about thinking about not just how do you protect people, but use the data in ways that benefit people in a safe manner. And so regardless of whether or not there was bias, um, I think there's a high chance, very likely, that there wasn't bias. It's that people perceived bias. It's that experience of dealing with a product in the Apple case where people felt that it was bias. In the case of the person that complained, he told a story about how he went from customer service agent to customer service agent, complaining, asking, you know, despite having a similar net worth, why is my wife's credit limit 30 times less? He wasn't able to get any clear answers. It was a terrible user experience for him. And at a last ditch effort, he posted it on Twitter that erupted. I think it was shared like 30,000 times and Apple finally responded. And so it goes to this idea that it ultimately has to come back to building those relationships with users, cementing that that trust, regardless of whether or not you're ticking the boxes.
0: So it's interesting. Privacy, we understand, or not sure everybody does it well, but we understand it. And it, it's it's sort of hand in glove with security. But you did bring it back to trust. Now, is one of the key foundations of trust then transparency, whether it's sharing what's in the algorithm or putting a better script in front of the customer support teams? How does transparency play in this?
1: I think that's, transparency is a huge component of it. And that's why there is that bill in Congress about the Algorithmic Accountability Act. We don't have much transparency in algorithms right now with maybe the, the exception being credit scores. But outside of that, there isn't really an obligation a legal obligation for people to be transparent about their algorithms, help people understand how it works, and more generally objecting to the results of algorithms in a systematic fashion. Outside of the U.S., GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation, does have mechanisms for that, but it's not embedded. So that's just another example of how privacy is one component of a larger strategy around how you use your data, how you communicate the way you're using your data to key stakeholders. Another component of that, that, as you just mentioned, is transparency. I think another component is making sure that you are catching these mistakes early. How are you working with users to catch, hey, you know, maybe some people might perceive this to be biased against women, or actually maybe it is biased against women. How How do we catch those things early on and build a brand and communication strategy that fosters and cements that trust?
0: Now you mentioned regulated industries. Does the industry matter in terms of how high up it is on the heat map for a CEO?
1: Absolutely.
0: So I think it comes in two ways. I remember reading a study, I think it's
1: by Accenture or Deloitte, where there are industries where people are most willing to change who they buy from. And those include things like retail and some other, I guess you could call them a little bit more interchangeable industries finance and healthcare, it's harder. At the same time, it's because they're more highly regulated, there are more controls in place for those industries that create these protections. So for instance, in finance, there is an audit that has to be in place that gives consumers a sense of trust that the way that the company is dealing with its data is on par. So absolutely, that is true. Additionally, if you mess up, the consequences are huge. For Under HIPAA, for instance, there are some cases where if you're intentionally or severely negligently violating privacy or the way that you're handling data for healthcare, protective health information could actually result in criminal sanctions. And so there's a reason those industries are seen as more secure. But at the same time, my, my concern is that that also has to be balanced with innovation. As much as we want to protect People. We also have to think about how do we design regulations so that we're not stifling small businesses and medium-sized businesses? How do we make sure that industries can still innovate? And so I think that's that tricky balance that we always have to think about when we advocate for privacy or other types of data regulations.
0: And some of your writings, this is kind of neat, you, you often talk about an offensive data strategy. Being on offense, not one that offends people (laughs) with analytics and predictions versus a defensive data strategy, data protection, governance, and the like. So when we get to that level of thinking about the product, this level of product really now is part and parcel with a much higher level business strategy then. Absolutely. And I think that goes back to what we're saying about Apple and Goldman Sachs,
1: is that that directly affected their product launch. Um, they were really. They probably put millions of dollars into this, fostered this really high stakes partnership. Yet it resulted in something that was really problematic for that company. And so we have to think about how it connects across the lifecycle, not just in the hands of you know lawyers and compliance officers and governors who are doing really important jobs. But that has to connect to products. That has to connect to the way that we're using data. That has to connect to user experience and balance, you know, how do we protect data, but also use it in responsible ways? Because that's ideally one of the goals of the data is that we ultimately are trying to improve people's lives. So if that doesn't go hand in hand, we're not thinking about how we safely use data so it maintains trust, then you're missing half of the picture. And I I will just note that I, I didn't come up with those terms. It was in this excellent HBR article called What's Your Data Strategy?, Uh, where this idea of offensive and defensive data strategy, incorporate that into my work. But it just points out again that if you're in this world, you have to work with the C-suite, they have to get bought in, and you have to work cross-functionally across the design cycle of your product and services to make sure that you're aware of that balancing act between protection and innovation and user experience.
0: That's great. We'll put a link to the HBR article in the the show notes. And thank you for, for doing your right citations, which (laughs) actually it fits so well in how we're thinking about things. So for me, uh, and we talk about trust, let's talk a little bit about accountability and my example, the one that I find sort of, I think about it, and I get a little troubled by it. I'm not upset. And I think it's probably correct that uh, the U.S. Filed sanctions, not sanctions, but um, criminal charges against China for the Equifax mm-hmm. hack. But all right. of a sudden, I don't want people sit back saying, you see, it was the Chinese versus didn't Equifax violate some of their accountability to their own people by not preparing for attacks? What comes first? Where's the chicken and where's the egg here?
1: Absolutely. I think that's a, such an excellent point. So I, I will first admit that I don't know too much about the politics behind the suit against the Chinese government. But I think the premise of what you're saying makes a lot of sense is that if we're not also holding accountable those who are responsible for the breach, are we really going to have change? If we're only pointing fingers across potential international actors who potentially did a really bad thing. So I agree. And I think that's why there's some legislation advocating for this idea that if you're responsible for a data breach, maybe like when it's extremely negligent, just like as in HIPAA, the Healthcare Privacy Act maybe those criminal sanctions should also exist in other sectors. And we're seeing some countries like China and uh, South Korea have some of those more extreme penalties. And so I I think, I don't know if we necessarily have to go there, but I I think this question of making sure people are also responsible around handling their data is a really good move.
0: I think it's an interesting observation and. Something that really should be thought about, and everyone should kind of think about that, that if there were harsher sanctions to boards for inactions that were taken, they might change the way they do things. I don't believe we get enough people – I mean there's the delete Uber and delete Facebook campaigns that run for a few weeks and then die off again. I don't think we've seen people rebel yet, but – But we strongly believe here at Georgian with our focus on trust that it could really harm a company and the risks to companies are quite great. Can you chat a little bit about some of the risks that you've seen maybe in fintech?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think there's there's a huge variety of risks. For instance, there's the risk of a biased algorithm. And I think that's what the Apple and Goldman Sachs story is getting to, regardless of not if it was biased. And there's also the perception of bias of that algorithm around deciding things like credit limits and things like that. There's a lot of other types of risks, such as you know sharing data with the wrong individuals. There are some really interesting stats. Uh, I think the EU Commission said that the primary reason people are getting fined right now is not due to third-party data breaches. It's because of insider incidents. Employees or third-party vendors that had incorrect access to data or negligently shared that data with the wrong people And I think that is only going to exacerbate as we have things like the California Consumer Privacy Act and GDPR, where people can now request data. And there are now lots and lots of different apps for people to request data from companies. I think those mistakes are only going to increase exponentially. More and more unintentional breaches will happen in that regard. Outside of that, I think the most classic thing was one of those large consulting firms that regularly advise banks and financial services where they just misconfigured their cloud storage. And so people could just access in plain text really sensitive data. And like, it's really shocking how much that still happens. I think people not understanding how to configure cloud environments correctly, especially if they have many cloud environments, especially if they have hybrid environments, that's only going to increase as more and more people get into that. And just, I just thought it was ironic that it was a um it was a consulting firm that was advising on this actually themselves were making that same basic mistake. And so I would really advise, I guess just to sum, I would just really advise like, let's get the basics right too. Things like configuring cloud environments and insider, that that would account for a lot of lot of things as well.
0: Interesting. So I, I like that and this all kind of wraps into accountability and who's accountable for what and there's a as there are more different piece parts play, in particular with crowd solutions, that makes it a little harder, but you can't forget that. Can yeah. you talk to me a little bit about your view then on, and we'll kind of get a little more ethereal here, data ethics and what are your thoughts are around that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's a very tough and broad area, but I think it's, it's a future of where a lot of these conversations will have to go because my perspective is that simply just doing what's legal is not going to establish trust. And I've mentioned Apple so many times again, but I think that's the clearest example. You might've done something legal. It's very likely that they didn't even have gender bias, but you still lost trust. You, you checked all the boxes. And how do you make sure that doesn't happen to you? And I think you have to go beyond what the laws are requiring you to do. And I think there are a couple of things that you can put into your toolbox to understand where to go. The first is, where's the world going? We can learn a lot from GDPR. In some ways, they're a little ahead of us around thinking about data regulations more broadly. For instance, measures of accountability of algorithms, that's a big part of that. And that's something that we're missing in a lot of the US. And so ethics is about not just doing what the law tells you to do, but also doing what you think will protect users and power them in the long term. Um, Beyond rules, which have a limit, are just general principles that go across from things like academic studies around ethics to bioethics, which has a pretty established tradition to various ethics codes that lots of companies are putting out. I like bioethics because it has an established tradition and it really centers on a few central points. Beneficence, you know, creating benefit, non-maleficence, not creating harm. All those are really obvious justice and autonomy. And I think those are really, those are really just big picture items that, Our current data regulations may or may not fall into, but that's been something that's been hashed out in the medical community, especially after lots of really terrible incidents like the Tuskegee Institute incident where a government agency was trying to develop some innovative vaccines for syphilis. But in doing so, without having good ethics codes and accountable ethics codes, they ended up causing harm to a vulnerable community African-Americans in doing so. And I think those types of things we have to keep in mind. As exciting as it is to create these new innovations, who are we leaving behind? Who are we potentially harming? And to make sure that that doesn't go down in the history books. The last component of this are just sort of critiques of ethics. And I think that's really important as this field evolves. Our, and some of those critiques include, for instance, that ethics is unaccountable, especially when you see this in a lot of corporate statements where people are creating ethics codes because they want to do what people call ethics wash, Like, greenwashing, like, show that you're ethics, but are you really being ethical? Like, what's the proof? Are you actually, going back to your point about accountability, like, is there accountability to this ethics? So that's one of the big critiques. The second is that because of the nature of academia and a lot of these conversations, ethics might be interpreted in Eurocentric or male-centric or, you know, various centric ways that exclude other viewpoints. And then the last sort of critique are just more... Again, going back to the the Tuskegee Institute, who are the people that we're leaving behind? Who gets to make the decisions around what to prioritize on these questions of power and inequality? It's becoming a more vocal criticism around the ethics conversation. And one thing I will encourage everyone to read is AI Now's 2019 report, um, where they review lots of different ethical risk factors, inequality risk factors that come out of artificial intelligence.
0: I like this. I also like thinking it's not a Checklist, GM ethical check, ethics washing is. God, I thought the latest thing was greenwashing, and now it's ethics washing. And you're right. If if a chart's coming up to the board, and you know it's it's our data strategy, data ethics, our privacy, our trust. I probably should be called trust. If it's just a bunch of check marks, we failed. If there's not a narrative, if there's not examples, right. if there's not right. even ROI back to the business in terms of. There could be a downside risk of losing customers. There could be a downside risk if we get to the points that you've spoken about in terms of lawsuits and fines and penalties. Uh, it's It's got to be bigger. This is great. Let me step back a little bit. We'll talk a little bit about something a little broader, data stewardship. Yeah. And you think about that in terms of three elements, people, product, as well as kind of tech a little bit. So right. Take me through that a bit.
1: Yeah, absolutely. This is just a framework around change that is brought up in a lot of different organizations. But people it's just this idea that what do people need? Like, what are they scared about? What are they currently working on? Because change ultimately, um, and you know, just give a larger perspective in context. Most people aren't doing data strategy in the comprehensive ways that we're talking about, or even like even more so, data ethics. So a lot of this will require change. And we were just talking about ideal worlds, but so we also need a theory of change, like how are we going to start equipping people to make change in their organizations in an effective manner and so this is why this this framework exists is to help equip people to make these changes in their organizations
0: but you have to give the people context from they 've got to get context of how to do their jobs and that's got to roll down from the top
1: hundred percent agree and so One of the classic ways for people to change, and this is why you see startups succeed, is they always start with the pain points. Like, what are people struggling with? Like, what do they really need? What are those barriers that they're facing? And how can your data strategy potentially help solve some of those problems? You're not going to find overlap with everything, but getting a really good context or understanding of what people need is critical. And I actually see that in my work constantly, which is that when organizations have both the, a stakeholder from the business side, I guess, revenue generating functions or analytics functions, partnering with the governance side, um, we often see that those organizations tend to get further in their data strategy efforts. The second is just process. Now that you've understood what people care about and what they're scared about, what do they need? How do you start building mechanisms to keep people accountable, to keep people in sync? And a lot of that involves cross-functional teaming so that people can align their efforts to build those coalitions, those diverse coalitions within, and start building that group that's really going to start advocating for change, start experimenting with different prototypes around ethical data strategy or just general data strategy generally, and prove out the value of what they're asking for.
0: When you say cross-functional, who's on the team? Absolutely. So not just
1: on the governance side, um, so just like legal risk and compliance, but also what the analytics side, also with ideally even marketing or product, getting these cross-functional teams allies across lots of different views of of the business is really critical because it goes back to what we we're saying before, which is that all this stuff can't just be what one group wants. It has to be interwoven throughout the process so mm-hmm. that we can better develop that business value. Because if it's ultimately just isolated within quote unquote a cost center. It's going to be really hard to prove that that strategic value. And then, lastly, technology is just this idea of okay, given that we have these different experiments, new workflows that are created, processes that are created, how can technology be used responsibly and effectively to make people's lives easier? So there's this idea of data protection by default. What are tools that you can start adopting so that it's easy to protect data by default and you only get access to data when you're supposed to? How do we make all these troublesome things? run in the background. So the internal user experience, like the user experiences of the data scientists or others, their life isn't troubled, but, they're, but they can still do, or just minorly troubled, but they can still do the right thing and understand that this is for the greater good of the company.
0: I like that when you went through your three parts of data stewardship, tech is the last as opposed to the first. So we did a little bit of the downsides, a little bit of the negatives. Let's end this on a positive note. And so <laughs> Tell me what some good things that can happen. You talk to me if customers are gonna be more loyal or share more data with you. Help me understand kind of the upsides of getting all this right. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's there
1: are a few things. The first is that it's an opportunity for the C-suite to take stock of what they're doing and refine their purpose. One of the key components of data regulation is society of purpose-based restrictions. Um, that you use data reasonably related to what you collected it for. It's really to attack this idea that you're just data data hoarding. You're just collecting lots of data without understanding what you're going to do with it. And then that you also use it for purposes that are reasonably related to people's expectations. But this is an opportunity for people to be proactive around what do they want this data for? Like what are sort of the analytical strategies that they want? What are some of the experiments that they want to do and embed that, proactively embed that within their data collection strategy, within their data storage strategy, within their analytical strategy, so that they can move forward with their goals. And so if anything, I believe that this is an opportunity for people to be more disciplined around thinking about what they want to do and not go in a reactive mode where you're just hoarding data or don't really have a clear sense of what you want to use the data for. Beyond that, with that purpose, with that mission, I think lots of positive things will follow. When you realize that you don't need to collect all this data and you increase the trust that you're not scaring customers by collecting social security you know, numbers unnecessarily, customers might want to share more data with you. They're like, oh, actually, this, this is a pretty painless process. And this is something that Allied Bank's chief marketing officer really talks about. She's really public, even as a marketing officer, saying that in the financial space, consumer space, there's a problem where we're collecting too much data and that's harming the user experience. People are questioning, like, why do you need this data? What are you going to use it for? If you collect less of it and you just ask for less higher quality data that matches your purpose, people will share that higher quality data with you, especially when they know that it's giving them immediate benefit. And, um, and
0: that matching your purpose then actually ties right back to transparency. 100%, 100%,
1: yeah. especially when you can uh, notify the user, like,
0: hey, we're collecting
1: this because we want to increase your user experience and give you this immediate benefit. People will more likely happily give you the data because you've thought through what that user interaction is going to be. The second, instead of, and again, I just want to contrast this with like, instead of relying on secondary data sources that are making inferences about users that might be more noisy, that might be full of bias, why not get higher quality data from people directly, especially if your business model can support it so that you can get that higher quality data and create better analytics in the long run. And then lastly, it's just this idea that you will have more resilient companies. I I really want to point out this Harvard Business Review study where professors analyzed and compared companies that had stronger data protection policies, for instance, better protecting data by default, allowing people to access their data. When there was a breach to a comparable company, those companies that had these protections, their stock didn't drop by 150% as much compared to those that had poorer policies. And so I just thought that was a really interesting stat that they they identified. And it kind of just shows that if you have these data protection policies, and it's very likely that we're living in a world where data incidents are inevitably going to happen, might as well protect yourself. Have these protections in place so you don't suffer these huge drops that'll be really important for the long-term resilience of your company.
0: Wow. So I've got customers happy that they're sharing data. They feel good about the data they're sharing with you. Customers are more loyal because of that. And companies have a lot less downside risk. Those are some pretty good positive stories. So I'm excited about that. So Dan Wu, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today.
1: Yeah, no, this was an exciting conversation. Thank you so much for sparking this and leading, leading the way around this. Really excited to continue the conversation.